good morning. Um, I'm excited to be bringing the Word of God to you all this morning for a few reasons. One, because it's always a privilege and a joy. Um, but two, the text that we're going to be in this morning is, of, uh, is particularly special to me. Uh, it changed my life 15 years ago. And that's not even uh, an exaggeration. It completely and radically changed my life 15 years ago upon reading it. And so... I, my hope and my prayer is that you all would pay particular attention um, and let the Lord uh, speak to your hearts and minds and your souls this morning uh, and may he move in us as a church uh, that we might be fashioned into more of his image and less of ours. So this is the title message of our series, Seek First. It's this text that we got the title of our series from and so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through uh, through 34 but the context uh, it's really a continuation of a dialogue that Jesus has already been having Um, as you know we're in the Sermon on the Mount and so at the start of this series I gave a, a, a refresher course on the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to step back just a little bit and we're going to reintroduce some of what Dave preached last week so that we are um, sitting on ready and go for what Jesus is about to tell us today. And so if you would, uh, please stand again. You should have just stayed standing the whole time. (laughs) And we're going to start in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after, these, after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, how kind you are to speak to us so directly and firmly, and yet your words are full of grace full of love and mercy. You know our needs. 
and you care for us. And I pray today that we would take you at your word, that we would step beyond ourselves, beyond the things that we can see, our circumstances, the trials, our very real needs. I pray that we would look beyond those things and that you would give us the strength to look to the kingdom above, to set our hearts and our minds on the things that are real, the things that you have called us to, the higher realities of gospel living. I pray that you would be our gaze and our and that you would be the thing that we behold, the one that we behold. Father, I pray that as we behold you, we would be more like you. Jesus, would your words cut us as they need to this morning, that we would be tender to the moving of your spirit and that we would commit to following you in faith and obedience. Please speak to us today for your name's sake. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> so if you've been with us for this series, you know that at the outset, the charge is that, or the assumption is that we will be practicing a, a kind of righteousness. There's no question to it. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. But then he gives a list of all the things that you will do. So he's saying you're going to practice righteousness and beware of how you do it. And so we, we looked at the motivation. But it's plain that these things will be done. And on the tail end of his particular discourse regarding money and giving... He says what we read in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. And, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus asserts that you cannot have two masters. Implying that you will have one. You will have one. In trying to have two masters, you inevitably love one and hate the other. It is impossible to serve both. But you will have one master. And the question is, who or what is your master? Who or what is your master? And I think it's a fair question to ask, what is Jesus really getting at? Because if you remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went up to the mount. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And immediately his disciples went with him. And he turns and he speaks to the crowd. And so there's an immediate division between the disciples and the crowds. Those who have already taken up their cross, so to speak. Those who have already committed to giving their absolute all to Jesus and the crowds. And Jesus is preaching to both audiences throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He is a skilled preacher because he knows how to address them both. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus as the sent one, as the Christ, and are following him in faith today, then we must listen to his sermon as the disciples. We must understand his intent for them. And so what is he getting at with this warning? Why is he saying you cannot serve two masters? 
Because for the most part, isn't it true that most of his disciples have already abandoned house and home? Have they not already given up everything they knew? Have they not already left behind careers to follow Jesus? So a cursory glance would make it seem as if they, they are not serving money. In fact, they are serving Jesus, their Lord. It doesn't seem at all like they are those who are greedy for gain or who would sacrifice anything and everything for the dollar. And I would also say that that probably describes most of us here today. I could have a bad, uh, I, I could have a bad judgment of this situation, <laughs> but to me, it doesn't seem that our church is full of greedy, licentious people who are laying it all on the line for the dollar bill. So what is Jesus saying? I believe that Jesus is addressing the far more common problem for the disciples and by extension for us. That even though we may not be chasing riches or outright greed, money deceives us into thinking that we have no security and no protection. It tricks us into thinking that we need more things. That somehow money will be our security and our protection. And then after lying to us, money taunts us by reminding us that we still have less than our neighbor. You see, money is a cruel master. Money's voice always cries, not enough, not enough. You need more. Jesus, though, is the kind and better master whose voice calls us out of anxiety and into faith and rest and contentment. He asserts his voice over competing voices at the very start of verse 25. Therefore, I tell you. Jesus is appealing to his own authority here. He's not just having a discussion with the disciples and the crowds, but he's saying, this comes from me. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And so from the very start, Jesus makes it clear. We will serve one master. Will we heed the voice of cash or the voice of Christ? Will we take him at his word this morning? Jesus, in appealing to his own authority as the sent one of the Father, he reveals himself as the good and better master, and he also shows us the life that is real. He shows us the life that is real. And so what is it that he shows us this morning? He reveals to us 
the true worth of life. Verse 26. Excuse me, just before verse 26. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider that. Consider the birds. They don't plant fields in hopes of a future harvest, nor do they store away grain for hard times. Rather, the birds of the air live day by day on the provision of their heavenly Father. It's all they do. They gather just enough food in the morning for them and their, their children, and they do what the day's tasks require. Nothing more and nothing less. And Jesus' point in all this is that the Father cares far more for you than he does the birds. This should be obvious to us. We, as humans, are the pinnacle of the created order. We are his workmanship and we bear his image. Moreover, and this is particularly important, moreover, the Father covenantally cares for those who belong to him through faith in the Son. Therefore, if the birds are always cared for, which is evident, is it not? If the birds are always cared for, won't you also be cared for? Won't you have food for the day? He continues by saying, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's, it's almost surprising to me that he asks the question. But he does, because it's a reality check. He's saying, in other words, can you actually add days to your life by worrying? Can you? He's revealing the fruitlessness of anxiety. It accomplishes nothing. It never has. It never has. It accomplishes nothing. If anything, it takes away from your quality of life. But it accomplishes nothing, and yet we we strive and we toil in it, do we not? Always thinking that if I just can do this, or if I'm just this kind of person, or if I can achieve this, somehow everything will work out. Somehow it'll all fall into place because I'm doing these things. And we toil and we strive day in and day out in anxiety and in fear. Thinking that something has changed. Maybe some cosmic force. Because we're not really believing in God in that moment. Right? God can only be defined by his revelation to us. And we can only serve him as he defines it and when we're operating in anxiety we're not serving him but we're serving a God of our own imagination and so can you add a day to your life by worrying 
I love Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 12, he says it a little differently. That account reads, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? (laughs) Jesus is funny. Jesus is funny. Because to him it is such a small thing. (laughs) Because in him we live and move and have our being. Everything that breathes life has the spirit of God. And I don't mean this in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but this is just the operating assumption of the scriptures that anything that has the breath of life has been given the gift of the Spirit. And God gives the gift and he takes it away. You are not in control of it. It's an easy thing for God to give life, to make it, and for God to take it away. Not so much for us. You cannot add a moment to your life. But what has been predetermined by your Heavenly Father is what is. It's an easy thing for him. But so long as we toil and strive in anxiety, we accomplish nothing. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why do we continue to believe the lie that somehow things, possessions, riches are my problems, are the solutions to my problems? As I mentioned, it's such a small thing for our Heavenly Father to hold us and to sustain us. Such a small thing. He does it for all of creation, does he not? Hebrews says that Christ upholds the universe by the power of his word. Marvel at that for a moment. Everything being sustained by sheer grace and a word of power from on high. He continues in looking at the lilies of the field. Why are you anxious about clothing? Jesus asks. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You see, the lilies do nothing at all. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) They do nothing. And yet, even we marvel at their beauty, do we not? We see flowers in the fields. We see a strong forest full of trees. We see the mountaintops and we marvel because there is a majesty and a beauty to all of it that we quite can't explain. Science cannot explain away the beauty of creation. It just doesn't. And in the grand scheme of it all, in God's divine wisdom, the lilies do absolutely nothing. They are clothing for the grass of the field. They eat and drink from the soil that they have been planted in, whether by birds or people or by God himself, they sit there. They just sit there. They don't make their clothing. 
They don't work. And yet, they eat and drink from the soil and they are warmed by the sun's rays. The rest of creation serves them because God has ordained it so. And yet, they grow. And yet, they produce a beauty that not even all of Solomon's linens and robes and jewels could surpass. If God's clothing the grass with such beauty, will he not also clothe you? Does he not know how to clothe us appropriately? Consider these things. Look beyond self and look to the created world and see God's goodness. It is abundantly evident that he cares for creation, that he is a good God. And for the words that Jesus gives us as his covenant people, he particularly cares for you. If you belong to him in Christ, he particularly cares for you. In giving those examples, Jesus then <clears throat> sets up the contrast between what life for the disciples should look like versus the rest of the world, the Gentiles. In verse 32, he says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. These aren't bad things. They're things that we need. And yet, somehow, we have taken a position in life that says, I must strive for them all. That God is a distant Father that has just set things up and has stepped away from it. And I've got to do everything in between. But in having that kind of view, in having that kind of functioning theology, we have made him the great no one instead of the great other. Because we pretend like he's not holding everything up by the power of his word, that he's not providentially caring for every detail in the cosmos. Let us not live there, but daily we must be reminded every detail is being upheld in grace and in power. Every care that we have, every need that arises, he's, he sees it. He sees it, and he knows you need them all. He is a good father who cares for his children. And in this contrast he gives in verse 32, he's making the point that the, the, the disciples actually have the better portion. The Gentiles, they seek after those things, but their seeking is in vain. In Matthew 16, 25, let's turn to it. Matthew 16, 
In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus, this is a familiar text. Jesus is giving the call to follow him. And we're familiar with this call. (coughs) Because we've heard it time and time again. But listen to this part. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, we understand the call to discipleship as self-denial, but it's also an indictment to the belief of the world that you must work to save yourself, that you must be the savior of you and your family, that your efforts are what produce the fruit of you having the life you want to live. And in some measure, God has ordained the world to work in a way like that. Actions do have consequences. We do reap what we sow. But Jesus is calling us not to forget the natural order of his created world, but to rather quit putting hope in fleeting treasures. Or to quit listening to the voice that continually lies. This is a call out of the fear of it all and, out, and into the trust and assurance that we have in belonging to God in Christ. And so, truly, we continue to work heartily. We continue to give all we have, but we do it, as we're going to see, first to Christ and his kingdom. For what will it profit a man? Oh, excuse me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. The Gentiles are seeking to save their lives. But it's a fool's errand. They're going to lose it. No matter what riches you amass in this life, no matter what possessions you acquire, there will be a day where every man and every woman will be judged according to their deeds. And no amount of possessions will abdicate you from your responsibility before a holy God. Nothing will absolve your guilt. Nothing will pay the ransom. That's why Jesus is calling us into that which is real. It seems so upside down to the world, but it's the life that it's real. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, this is why chasing money and and possessions like the Gentiles is such a fool's errand. You will chase and you will chase thinking that you're adding to your life, to your security, and to your happiness. But what happens to such a man who does those things? Jesus tells many a story regarding this. And let us look to one parable in Luke 12. This parable is given right before this pericope, Luke's version of this pericope I'm preaching out of. Parable of the rich fool. Jesus says, well, excuse me, the scriptures say in Luke 12, starting in verse 15, and he said to them, 
Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have produced, excuse me, I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I hope you're seeing some of the continuity in this series coming to a point here in Jesus' charge to us. So the plight of the Gentiles who seek and seek and seek, really it's, it's nothing, it's judgment. Their life will be required of them and all that they gained, all that they earned, all that they stored will be left to who knows. Perhaps they're children, perhaps not. Nothing's really ours these days, is it? But what has promised us? What has promised us? It's this, that our good and heavenly Father knows our needs. He sees them all. And if he sees them, will he not care for them? If he sees you, will he not care for you? Our worth is not measured in the things we have or don't have, but instead is measured according to the life that we have in God. That's our life's worth, is the abundance that's been given to us in Jesus alone. And that is the cup from which all other things are filled. And here is the particular promise given to us as we continue on. Jesus says this in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is a good and glorious promise from Jesus. But we would be foolish to not understand that this is a conditional promise. Here's the condition. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if you do that, if you fulfill the condition, what is your reward? Everything you need will be graciously supplied. Everything you need will be graciously supplied. This conditional promise is not just given in regards to our anxiety about money or possessions or needs. The charge is to seek 
God's kingdom and God's righteousness as our primary aim. So this language and those words ought to immediately draw you back to the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount. The entire sermon, Jesus is revealing that people aren't righteous. The law is. Only one fulfills the law, and his name is Jesus. And in order to be righteous, we must be found in him. And so you, you should be thinking about these things already when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then you should also be reminded of what we just preached through in chapter 6 specifically. Because Jesus is not saying, this is important, Jesus is not saying, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear or your life, what you will, you know, your clothes and stuff. Don't worry about those things. God will take care of you. That's not actually what he's saying. No, he's actually charging us to righteous kingdom living first. Because this is the path to the blessed promise. Do not misunderstand this sermon. Jesus, the Lord sees you. Jesus has revealed to us that the Father sees us and he cares for us. But to reap the benefits, we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As established already in Christ's sermon, it's Jesus' righteousness, because he is the only one who is righteous, that becomes our righteousness as we trust and obey him. And so what we're seeking is Jesus in all that we do. He is our aim. He is our highest affection. We give priority to him. He is master and nothing else can be. As we abide in Christ and walk in his righteousness, we will obey the law and we will display God's righteousness before men. We will give to the needy. We will pray humbly, earnestly, and regularly. We will fast even when no one knows. We will lay up treasures in heaven by generously giving to the work of ministry. We will gather with the church regularly. We will sing together. We will sup together at the Lord's table. We will bear one another's burdens. We will live like the church. We will do these things and all the things that he has commanded us as a first order. This is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. We must hang everything on Christ's word. No worry, no care, no concern should prevent us from fulfilling our duties to Christ and his kingdom. So the question I have for all of us, do you believe him? Do you believe him? Do you believe that if you take him at his word, that if you obey him in faith, he will fulfill his end of the promise? Do you? This is what he's called us to, church. This is faith. This has to be the substance of our faith. 
in the famous words of Jonathan Edwards, most of you don't know who he is, words are cheap. Words are cheap. It is what we do in response to Jesus' commands that substantiate our faith. We have to do something. If our faith be real, it calls us to do something. And so we must make resolves to seek him first. We cannot live by the tides of emotions or by the winds of change, but we must commit our ways to him always. In verse 34, he says, Therefore, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If we do believe him, if we have taken him at his word, then we can also take him at this word. And we can, we can joyfully accept his command to not be anxious about tomorrow. It's a command. It's a command. We can accept it with joy and gladness because we know he's been faithful today, he'll be faithful tomorrow. I will abandon self. I will abandon every effort of preservation, every effort of accruing security and safety, all the things that vie for my heart's affections, I will lay them down. And I will follow Jesus the Christ today. And I will wake up tomorrow and I'll say again, today I follow you. And then the next day, I'll wake up and say, today I'll follow you. I will seek first your kingdom, Jesus. I'll take you at your word. This is what he wants to do in every single person in this room. This is what he wants to do in us as a church. Seek first the kingdom. And if you don't, if you still don't know what that looks like, read the Bible. Please, please, take it serious. Read it, and if you don't understand it, read it until you do understand it. Talk to your pastors. Confide in brothers and sisters. But pursue Christ and his kingdom. And I love Jesus's, Jesus's just, he's, he, his realness in verse 34. In another translation, it says, today has enough worry of its own. Does it not? He, he sees us. He's aware of the trials. He's aware of the tribulations. He's aware of our needs. He understands that they are trouble to us. And in all of that, he says, trust me. In all of that, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Trust me. Today does have enough worry of its own. So let's sort out today and let tomorrow take care of itself. So as I wrap up, I remind you of these three things. 
Jesus is the better master. Whether you want to admit it or not, you are a slave to someone or something. It is just a question of who. And I'm telling you today that Jesus is the loving master who cares for us. He shares his righteousness with us and he faithfully points us to the Father. He is the better master. Choose him today and every day. Secondly, our heavenly Father sees us and cares for us in a measure not seen throughout the rest of creation. Do you believe that? That he cares for you in a measure not seen in the rest of the created world. Birds are just birds and flowers are just flowers, but we have been made in his image. And we are his children truly if we belong to him in Christ. Therefore, our life's worth is not in the things we own or don't own, but rather it is in the life that God gives and in the care that he provides. And lastly, all of life's things are ours in Christ if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We have been guaranteed everything we will ever ever need so long as we first aim our lives towards Christ and his kingdom. Doesn't mean you'll get everything you want, but it does mean you'll get everything you need. Will we trust him, church, and take him at his word? Let's pray. Father in heaven above, Lord, forgive me and forgive us for worrying, for doubting your goodness and for living in a place of anxiety where we don't trust in you, in your goodness, and in your hand of provision. I testify personally that I have seen time and time and time again you be faithful to this promise. And yet even today, I know there's doubt hidden within. Would you purge us, Lord? Would you teach us to trust you all the more? I pray for strength and resolve for all of us to take you at your word. Lord, teach us obedience. Lord, would you discipline us as your children that we might know the fruit of righteousness by walking in faith and obedience to all that you've commanded us. We want nothing less. I think I can speak for all when I say we're tired of the lesser things. We're tired of being distracted and occupied and entertained by trinkets. But we want to be consumed by you. I pray that our heart's affections would be set on you, that you would be the object of all our desire, that we would behold you rightly and be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we continually seek your face. Please, would you do it? I pray this now according to the covenant promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.